0: I'm Jack Fence, and this is Belmont Voices, your guide to the people and their stories in one small New York neighborhood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of Belmont Voices. Today, I'm delighted to share with you an interview with Ms. Valerie Savino, who is the young, dynamic principal of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Elementary School right here in Belmont. Now, we spoke in her office, so there are all sorts of extra sounds on this piece of tape because it's in a principal's office. So there's people knocking at the door, there's trucks, there's a plane at one point, there's a, a computer, there's a metal chair being dragged across the floor upstairs, all part of the ambiance. But thanks again for listening and enjoy this interview with Ms. Valerie Savino. Thank you so much for taking the time no to problem. talk with me uh, about this topic about Belmont. Uh, so you're not, do you live in this area?
1: I don't. You um, live nearby. I live nearby, I live about 20 minutes north in southern Westchester, but my family is from the Bronx, not here, yeah. over by Waterbury Park, so the other side of, of the Bronx, like other side of Pelham Parkway.
0: <laughs> yeah. And is yeah. it pretty much, is it really different on that side? Very or? different. Yeah. Completely.
1: Yeah. Night and day. Demographically uh, different, socio-economically different. I would say This side of the Bronx is predominantly consistent all the way through, even as you move south.
0: This side being the side of? The
1: northwest, south side. Um, The northeast, east side of the Bronx is incredibly different from neighborhood to neighborhood. There are still pockets where it is predominantly white, predominantly Italian, and then there are pockets where... The demographic is actually not Hispanic, but like Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So, like African American Caribbean pockets of Dominican communities, but more so that realm. And then this is predominantly all Hispanic.
0: Yeah, you you started this job. How old are you? You're, you're, you're am, way younger than I always think. I was like,
1: <laughs> she can't be the principal. She's too young. Yeah. Um. So I am 31 now. I'll be 32 in April. I signed my contract when I was
0: 28. And you had gone to school in a, in a Catholic high school?
1: I know. I went to a public high school in a Lower Westchester. And then I went to a Catholic college. I went to Iona College.
0: Iona? Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And then for my master's, I ended up at Rose Hill.
0: So you're the principal at a local Catholic grade school that's connected to a parish mm-hmm. in Belmont. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And how long has this school been around? 19, since
1: 1926. Opened this year with 302 students.
0: And they're mostly local?
1: There's maybe three families who are from the other side of Pelham Parkway, but they came here as part of our enhanced special education program that we began this
0: year. Why did you work here? Why did you think, gosh, because it was where the job was?
1: No, no. So I had opportunities. I actually altogether went on eight interviews. Um, six of them were for schools, openings on, in this region for the arch in the northwest-south Bronx. Out of the eight interviews, I kind of had a choice of about four. When I came here, I loved that it had potential to have a marial Charism that was really important to me, especially being Our Lady of Mount Carmel. I loved that it had a very anchored parish I loved the history of the school and the neighborhood and the parish and I just felt like it was a good fit I kind of walked through the door and I said, okay, this can this could be home. I could do this
0: And had you been in and out of this neighborhood a lot before that?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This neighborhood has always been sort of like in my realm of knowing. I also went to Fordham Rose Hill for my first master's. So I was coming as a teacher for four years. I was coming, you know, three and four times a week here. So, yeah. yeah. Had your
0: family, I assume you're Italian. I am. Had your family come to Little Italy and done all that or not?
1: Um, My family has shopped here and we have um, some local family connections, Um, you know, people who live. the neighborhood who are vendors and they know my family so yeah so like this whole area in my my life has been um kind of prominent and important in terms of memories and you know every christmas eve we would come here and and, um, go out to eat so there's that whole factor but my family is italian parents are first generation so both sets of my grandparents came through alice island so there was a lot of influence of that growing up and staying connected to people who have also sort of um, migrated into the United States and having those connections here.
0: Has the neighborhood changed much since you've been visiting?
1: Since I've been visiting in my like Uh young adult life and going to school at Fordham, no, uh, the neighborhood has relatively kind of stayed the same. But as it's, child coming here um, and you know celebrating um, holidays and, and milestones. There were a lot of, I guess one would call them old timers who um, have since passed that were friends with um, like my grandfather and my grandmother. And I remember, you know, coming here, going to restaurants, then meeting us. And th- so those people have changed um, in, in my life and in my, my realm. And so I, I feel like from the time I was a child to now, the second generation of those people have now since um become prominent in arthur
0: avenue in the community right i go occasionally i've been to trotanoi i remember going in there one time it was sort of in between the lunch and the dinner sort of thing and there was an older guy at the front table like shelling beans or something and you're just like oh like, wow, that's so old school. So there was much more of that. Yes, yes,
1: much more of that. The older generation,
0: really hands-on.
1: There is a gentleman. He works at Antonia's. His name (coughs) is, well, his nickname is Butch. He has probably known me since I was in diapers. Really close friend of my aunt. And it's funny because when... I went there my first year as principal with Father Jonathan, our pastor. Father Jonathan was introducing me to everyone, but yet everyone already knew me. So it was like this very interesting, like, like, let's let, you know, father talk. Um, And then Butch said to him, I've known her forever. And so it was like this really just like funny kind of coming home type of thing. That's nice. Yeah.
0: And do you feel that neighborhood is safe or not? When people say, gosh, how do you live there or work there? It's, It's not safe. What do you think about that?
1: Well, on a, on a personal level, I mean, I definitely have to mind my P's and Q's when I'm by myself, especially if I am leaving the building late at night, which happens a lot, and I'm mm-hmm. by myself, and I definitely have to be aware of my surroundings. Um, I think at a certain time, it is not safe if you're not familiar with the area. There are pockets where it can be questionable. Um, I've, you know, had scenarios where my parents have felt unsafe um, after they're picking up their kids late at night or they're walking by themselves. You know, so is it the safest neighborhood? No. Is it the worst? No. I think that where I worked previously was a lot more hairy because we were so close to one of the largest projects um, Mm -hmm. in the Bronx. Um, We were right outside of Eden Wall and over the course of my seven years there, I, I mean, four of my students passed away to, to um, gang-related violence. So, you know, to be so close to that in an area that you go to every day and in broad daylight is seemingly safe. I think it puts a different perspective on things and I think that's kind of how I feel here um, during the day. You know it's 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 pretty okay we've got a lot of public schools we've got a lot of security outside and around mm-hmm. um, I would say after six o'clock it's it's a little at your own risk yeah but I also feel like and I don't know how statistically true this is this is just like a personal perception there are pockets of places in this neighborhood that are really attributed to like gang affiliation from what I'm hearing and what I've experienced. And I think it's one of those things where if you're not looking for it, you won't see it. If you know it exists, it's there. And for that, it, it, it's, it's almost like a cultural part of the community, which is an, an interesting thing. It's kind yeah. of just an accepted reality
0: that that's that that's part of it What, what would you say the for you the favorite places in the neighborhood
1: oh wow the vendors i love you know my first two years as principal it was really hard for me to kind of like get out and enjoy the neighborhood it was a lot of relationship building a lot of meet and greets a lot of you know if I was going somewhere it was because I had a purpose or because I needed to know something that maybe you know everyone said oh go speak to Joe in the corner store or something like that but now I would say so a couple of my favorite places I do a lot of food shopping and the market I love to stop by Mike's Deli. Dave Greco is phenomenal. He is like an anchor in the community. He's always very nice. He never, never, never says no to us when we call and ask for donations or support. He's fantastic. Jerome, who owns Gino's pastry shop, he's also another anchor in the community. It's always great to stop in and see him have a cup of coffee. He's always like, "Hey, come on in!" Super nice. For me, the, like the catechetical center of our parish is a hub. There's always people there. There's always, you know, parents to to see and say hello to. Um, and I'm there a lot. You know, both for work, but just to say hi. So those are kind of like my like hot spots. Over the summer for the first time at Tradinoi it was amazing, amazing food, um, wonderful people. And Antonios, um, or Antonia's, we always have our faculty parties there. And that's kind of like a go-to place for everyone uh, in the neighborhood. So.
0: so as kind of part of the old guard Italians, what's your experience of like the Kosovar Albanian thing? That's part of part of Little Italy as well.
1: So my family, I'm half Buddies and I'm half Sicilian, and my father's family is from a small port town in Bari called Trit. and Treet is a, it was a port town for like shipments and things like that. But when things really kicked up in Albania and in Kosovo um, and during the war, a lot of people came over. So Kosovo is like ninety miles off the coast of Treet. And so a lot of people sought refuge um, in Italy during that time and kind of like migrated over. So growing up, my father's um, Italian is actually part Slavic. So I always kind of grew up um, with this sense of them being like... Familiar cousins to us, whereas on the outside looking in, I think people are like, "Oh, it's uh, you know, Arthur Avenue. It's all Albanian now." But I don't think that they know really enough about the European history to know that. I think the cultures are very closely related, and I, to me, that's a p- pretty organic assimilation, like of yeah. their community and their culture. Also. I have a personal connection with um, the Yugoslavian family who owns the um, Kakora restaurant. Um, I've known them for a long time. They own uh, several restaurants throughout the Bronx, and they're they're wonderful. So. It, to me, it makes perfect sense. But I think when people say things like that, it's because they're really not familiar with how closely related those cultures are.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason they're here in Little Italy. Lidl- Absolutely. Because yeah. they find a, you know, a commonality, a mm-hmm. common culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm down at Prince Coffee quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always like, wow, it's, it's always packed with... Oh, yeah. ...with that uh, Kosovars. Um, and probably a range of Slavic uh, Absolutely. Folk, and I was like, yeah, and it feels like... Just part of Italy yeah
1: Yeah. and that's really I mean that coffee shop is really the most I would say traditional piece that the community has in the sense of it's always packed no matter what time of day there's always people having coffee whether it's like personal or business Um, and it makes it just makes sense it's part of that culture it's it's kind of part of you know European life (laughs)
0: yeah it's great it's a great place to be so tell me about uh, uh, the families that you you get to work with here what surprised you, or
1: I would okay. So I would say nothing surprised me. However, it took me a while to understand the cultural differences as opposed to the audience. I guess that I was serving as a teacher. So when I taught on the other side of the Bronx, ninety percent of my students were Caribbean. The ten percent were um, like a mixture of. Hispanic, Irish, we were so close to Woodlawn, which is a predominantly Irish neighborhood. It was, it was an int- that was an interesting transition for me. And then being there for seven years, I just understood it, it just became norm. Um, and I was really close to a lot of my families and uh, certain things that they did just made sense to me. So now when I transitioned here and it's predominantly Hispanic, there were a lot of things that I think they were off put by in terms of me and my person. Perception wise, you know, I'm white and I'm young and, uh, you know, there's always a debate like, is she Spanish? Is she not Spanish? What is she? Does she speak Spanish? Does she understand what I'm saying? So I had to do a lot of relationship building in terms of building trust and allowing people to understand that, like, I might not speak the language fully always but I'm going to find a way to understand you and I'm going to find a way to make sure that you're being heard and heard appropriately. So that took a while. That was like my whole first year. Now, it's, I mean, it's great. Uh, They have wonderful traditions. They have wonderful cultures. Many, many, many of my families are ingrained in their traditional cultural values. And that, I have to keep that in mind when having... Other conversations with them
0: what's an example of that
1: so and I think this is prevalent everywhere so I don't think this is just here but you know in the course of the three years I've been principal there's been a lot of discussion about young adolescent suicide and having students with those issues when it comes to a place where you need to have a conversation with a parent you have to take into consideration that the culture that they are trying to preserve in their home is very different to the popular culture that their child experiences day in and day out whether it's walking to school whether it's hanging out with friends after school they're in the neighborhood those are things i can't control you know so when issues of that magnitude bleed into the building and now it becomes something i need to address with the family i have to be very mindful about how receptive those families are to these issues that are very real, but also what is their knowledge about these things in a broader sense. So it's hard. You know, I think a lot of my families are very traditional. I think they are very old school if you want to use that term. When you say
0: traditional, give me an example of you. They
1: are traditional in their culture. So if it's Mexican, it's their, you know, clinging to like those Mexican values and those Mexican um, traditions and
0: But like what family means or what people do within a family? What
1: family means, what people do within their family, what values are important to them, what they feel like their children should be or shouldn't be exposed to or should be or shouldn't be involved in. And sometimes there's this lack of acknowledgement about things. And so sometimes when you call a parent in and you're trying to explain something to them for the benefit of their child, you have to kind of take a step back and say, okay, is this parent going to understand the context of what I'm about to tell them? And if not, then we need to start there. Mm -hmm. So it's addressing things in a totally different different way um and i'm also speaking with families who for one reason or another have a lack of resources sure so i have to keep that in mind you know there are Uh. there are just even other things you know once in a while i deal with students who are discerning who they are discerning what their sexuality is and like having to have those conversations in a catholic context in a cultural context sure that's very challenging. When a parent calls me and says, so-and-so came home today and told me that another student said X, Y, and Z, and we don't talk about those things in, in my home. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so, however, in, in the world at large, these are the things that people are talking about, yeah. you know, which is not necessarily not appropriate right so just because it's not in your home doesn't mean that your child won't be exposed to it so those are the types of cultural conversations I'm having that are challenging
0: you know here we are in a small probably underfunded Catholic grade school Mm -hmm. like what's the point like why why keep doing these things
1: why not (laughs) right Uh, no So it's interesting I, I, I recently I was part of a study that a young principal is doing. She's doing her, her dissertation on Catholic schools in the tri-state area. So part of it was, I had one, one interview with her, but then I was on a focus call, like a focus group call, with seven other female principals from Pennsylvania and Delaware and Maryland and like all of these like kind of places around. And the question was, what do you think the future of Catholic education is? Everybody was silent. And I said, well, I said the future of Catholic education is whatever we want it to be. It's going to be different than what it is today. But I think what is important now is the thought of maybe having less religious presence in our schools than we do now. And what does that mean for the mission and the vision and the charism of your school? How are you identifying and forming lay people to continue that mission? 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Instructionally, how are we keeping up with the times? How are we keeping up with the competition? Um, Because to some degree, it is a business. Um, And we have to keep that business alive and thriving. And, And how are you fiscally responsible for your school in terms of the decisions that you make and the programs that you choose to take on? And then I think if we don't do this, who will do it, right? Which sounds kind of... I don't know, uh, facetious, I guess. But what I mean is, over time, there have been a lot of people straying away from the church. And I think that there's several different factors that play into that. I also think it has to do with culture. And that's like a whole other thing. But when I gave this answer on the focus call and I was like really positive about it and I truly, it's genuinely something that I live and breathe. A woman chimed in and she said, hi, you know, my name is so-and-so and I've been a principal for 30 some odd years and you sound like a millennial. I'm not that hopeful. And I thought to myself, like the first immediate thought was, this is the problem. And like, it's okay to say that we're at a place where we're rethinking the future of Catholic education and why we do what we do and how we do what we do. And I think that's a very honest thing to say. I think people are either tired <laughs> or they've been in it so long that I think there is this sense across the archdiocese of the changing of the guard. And like, that's okay, you know, um, and I think sometimes we need to lead with the lens of, I am not always going to be here. I am not always going to be principal, superintendent, whatever you know the case may be. And how do I make decisions that give this school solid anchors to propel it forward for whatever the future holds? And I wish that more people kind of looked at this time and place as an opportunity as opposed to a decline
0: what does success look like for a student or a family at this school when you say wow that's actually working
1: it depends on the student it depends on the family i think base level they make it into a wonderful high school that could be a Catholic high school where they receive like a partial scholarship and the family doesn't have to worry about anything for the next four years. could be a Bronx specialized high school um, where they are going to pursue their dream of singing, acting, dancing, um, engineering. Um, success overall is giving students an opportunity that their parents never had and might not ever have. That's part one. I think part two is when we talk about the culture of special education, it is rethinking the way that we think and speak about education and inclusivity and equal education. Equal education isn't necessarily giving every child the same thing as opposed to giving each child what he or she needs to be successful on a personal level. So what does that personal best look like? What does that personal growth look like? And that's not something that's necessarily measured anymore by some broad stroke of uh, a benchmark, a standard. Um, it's very individual. And um, I think the art has taken strides at large in their Pathways to Excellence um, strategic plan um, to really adopt software and programs that address an individual child's needs. And that, that I think is success.
0: Um, what do you think your uh, the ability to have Jesuit scholastics here on this kind of team is that helpful? Is it not? What What are they?
1: Super helpful. Why is that? Um. So first of all, the young men that we have like truly been blessed with fit in perfectly. Um, they're dynamic. They're funny. They're real people, and I think. We forget. I go back. Well, to answer this, it's sort of part personal. So I want to go back to um, grad school at Fordham uh, when I was in the theology program. I'll never forget the first class I had. It was an it was an Old Testament class, and I was probably one of like three women, and all young men, and a large part of them were scholastics. And this was like in 2010. And I would go to class and uh, twice a week, and I was so frustrated because here we are sort of like analytically and very academically talking about scripture that is very personal I'm assuming to every single person in the room for different reasons and there was this really interesting dynamic because I was the only teacher and I was the only person saying but how would you teach this to students why is this important why is this applicable we can't just say oh yeah it was written like this because of history or its historical context or because the author meant x y and z or because of the translation like yes there is a very real literal component to it which is very important for interpretation but what is the interpretation today in 2010 what is it now in 2018 and i think because of a lot of the stigmas of the church when people are not exposed to religious or religious life, they lose the concept of them still being human. And like, what does that mean and, and for them? And what does that mean for their experience? I get the perception sometimes that people feel that when we have, say, religious among us, they're here to enrich our lives. But people fail to realize that we're also enriching their lives. It's a shared experience and it's a lived experience. And so having the Jesuits here allow the students to kind of see their discernment process and their growth and their formation, I think in a totally different new way. Also the fact that they get to kind of jump in and teach I think is really valuable for them because they get to experience like real problem-solving and I always say to uh, people who are in education programs I'm like have fun now while you're like reading and like discussing things in a classroom because when you shut the door and you have 30 students in front of you none of that will matter and they always look at me like what do you mean and I'm like yeah th- like trust me you're not going to go back to like page 234, section D, and say, okay, I think I need to, like, you know, employ this tactic. No, you're going to be like, oh, my God, what do I do? Yeah. (laughs) So the fact that they get to see, like, the real things that students come to school with, the real questions that they ask, appropriate responses, or sometimes not appropriate responses, like having students change classes and the teacher going, I don't know that that went so well. You know, that real life experience I think is very valuable to them. Also, they have become such a part of our school, and I'll give a very real example. They were here last week, and Lord knows I was upset about something. And so I went outside, and uh, they were like on break with one of my teachers, and they're all, they're drinking coffee. And my teacher said to me, you're all right, Val, what's wrong? And I just went off. I was like (laughs) And then I looked at them and I said, I'm really sorry, but this is just, honestly how I'm feeling today and then I thought you know what I'm not really that sorry because they might be a principal one day you know they might be head of a Jesuit school and what what is that experience going to look like and so I think it's important to have that lived experience and I think it's important for people today to see.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's really good to hear. Yeah. That's really good to hear. That's kind of what we what we hope when we place people in these these different uh, different areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have only three more questions for you. Uh, the first one is, uh, what do, what do people get wrong about the Bronx? Do you think?
1: Hmm. What do people get wrong about the Bronx? You know, I don't know that they do. <laughs> I feel like sometimes the stigmas are real. Um, like you know, in true New York fashion. I did, so the safety. I go back to the safety thing, though. I think sometimes people outside of the city have a perception that it's way worse than it actually is. I also though think that the reverse can happen, where people are way more naive than you know they should be. I mean, there is a degree where you need to, you know, be aware of your surroundings and know your audience, right? Like that's the other thing. I don't know that people necessarily get things wrong about the Bronx, but I think people get things wrong about Catholic schools in the Bronx. I think there's a sense that that we're dying. And that bothers me. Um, I, I think when I speak to people, they'll say, so when are you going to go to public school? Or when are you going to go to the DOE? And I'm like, Yeah, like if you're asking me that question, you have seriously missed something, you know. And I really like this saying that I learned from one of my college students yesterday. You know, we're surviving and thriving. It may not be the way people think we should be, but we are. Um, I think when we look at closing schools, we're really the arch is really making...
0: The archdiocese. The
1: archdiocese is really making fiscal decisions to pump life and vitality into the schools that are surviving and thriving and there's a reason for that and i only say that because i again i was in a group different group with different principals and there was a a principal who is outside of the um bronx who's in the in upper uh westchester and we were talking about donations and donors and funding and, and advisory boards and how that works and she said well you know my school's not in dire straits the way yours are And the two other principals I was sitting with, we all kind of looked at each other and we said, not that we were offended, but it was more of, is that the perception of who we are? Because when you really think about the history of Catholic schools in New York, some of the Bronx schools are the schools that have been in existence for years. I mean, you've got schools that are staples. They were staples when I was a kid. Um, You know, like St. Francis de Chantal here, most certainly Angela Marici. You've got... St. Raymond, St. Benedict's, I mean, all really big schools. I mean, you're talking at one point in history, they had thousands of students. And so, again, I think Catholic education has changed. I don't necessarily think the perception of it is correct. It's okay to say that we've changed, and it's okay to say that we've been a little bit more selective about um our admissions process and our enrollment process and what we offer and what we don't offer and why. In terms of people getting things wrong about the Bronx, I think a lot of the stigmas are very true socially and culturally. But I do think the perception of schools
0: is skewed. What, what gives you hope in the, in the world, in your life, in your work?
1: <laughs> there, there was a, a common thread since I was, so since I started college in, in 2005 and I was at Iona, Um, and I was exposed to the Christian Brothers. They had so much life. They were so fun, and they were so real, and they were just, they were themselves, they were people. I think that stuck with me, but also, I loved being in my religion classes. It was new. It was something I have never had before, and I got to really discern like my personal faith and, and what does that mean to me, and who am I in the world of, you know, am I am I contributing? Am I being a viable citizen, or am I someone who's just kind of like a bystander? And who do, who do I want to be in this life? And I think that kind of made the decision really easy for me in the sense that I wanted to help people. I wanted to do something where I was helping people and then when I started to kind of go into language one of the things I studied for like two years was Dante's Inferno so much you know religious symbolism so much of the concepts of the early church permeated like everything that I was learning. And it was interesting to me. And when I was about to graduate and I had a minor in religious studies, I said to myself, you know, I'm bored. I don't know that I really want to be teaching grammar and like declensions like for the rest of my career. There's something I'm missing here. And I think, I think it's the faith piece. Like I, I think I really want to teach that. I really want to talk about that all day, every day. And then when I started teaching at the Mount, I thought to myself, how lucky am I that I get to teach students to critically think about their faith and who they want to be in this life because it's not something I ever had in high school outside of like CCD and I, what was that, you know? So um, I, I really, and then, and then from there I was a campus minister and I got to do service projects and I got to feel like I was actually doing something. I think I, I got to this place where I thought, whatever I do I just want to make sure that I'm changing the world if I can move the needle even a little bit that's okay like it's, it's a little bit more than it was yesterday and I kind of have that same philosophy being principle it's hard it this is a hard job because there's a lot of different moving pieces there's a lot of things that I wish I could relegate more time to that I just physically can't what's important to me is moving the needle and if that means like a half a centimeter in one day. It's a move, right? Um, As long as we're not going backwards, then we're doing something right.
0: Yeah, that's good. One final question. What what is a characteristic Bronx sound for you? Like when you think of the Bronx, what kind of sound comes to your mind? (laughs)
1: Horns. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Angry horns? Angry horns. I was driving to work this morning and my childhood best friend, she works about five blocks north of here and we kind of take the same route and as we're both on the phone i hear horns on her side horns on my side horns horns and it's like this like chorus of you know traffic sounds as we're sitting here trying to have a conversation because she's about to give birth to my second godson like next week angry angry horns
0: (laughs) you're welcome thank you for taking the time to do this
1: thank you for asking me to do it happy to do it
0: really useful for us thank Thank you. you